Welcome to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. November 2020 speech was given the day after the election by Eric Eggers, an author and researcher at the Government Accountability Institute. Eric spoke about election security issues, both new and old, and answered many audience questions, all recorded live here at the Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. So get some cream cheese on your bagel and take a sip of your coffee, because you're listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. Are you looking to launch your career? Do you want to gain real, professional experience while sharpening your media skills? Then apply today to be a studio's intern here at the Leadership Institute. As a studio's intern, you'll master Adobe programs and get behind-the-scenes access to media professions across the board. Just go to leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. That's leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. Hey, good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you, Morton, for that introduction, and thanks uh, to the Leadership Institute for being here. Like like you, I was up somewhat late last night, and uh, but I have three small children, so I was not permitted the luxury of sleeping in past 7.30 this morning. Um, okay, so uh, you know I'm a guy you guys have probably never heard of who wrote a book you maybe didn't read, but like, here's why you should listen to me because literally what I talk about in the book that uh, Mr. Blackwell just referenced is exactly sort of kind of what we're wrestling with, I think, right now. Um, you know, we all, we've all seen what's happened and we've all seen, if you went to bed last night and you saw Donald Trump with a lead in Michigan and then you woke up this morning and magically 138,000 votes were transferred to Joe Biden, um, you know, I think, I think it's fair to ask questions, right? And uh, one of the things that I talk about in the book is the systemic vulnerabilities that American elections have for interference through nefarious political actions. And so, I mean, the reality is, is that the pandemic has unfortunately exacerbated the many different ways in which um, our elections are rife for potential malfeasance, right, and fraud. So why is that? Um, the Supreme Court cited statistics from a Pew Center study in 2012 and they found, right, when they ruled about Ohio's efforts to make their elections more secure by removing, um, you know, dead or legal voters from the voter rolls, which really is sort of like the central issue to American elections, right? It's the voter roll. Because once you get onto a voter roll, then you can cast a ballot. And there's really nothing to be done to stop you. So the Supreme Court said, you know, hey, look, 24 million voter registrations in this country, that's one in eight are wrong. Um, and why that matters is because now with a pandemic, when some states have mailed everyone proactively a ballot, uh, some states like Michigan mailed everyone an absentee ballot request form, that means that those ballots and those ballot request forms are going places where voters aren't, right? And so it just creates opportunities for political organizations or political activists to do something with them. That's what happened in New Jersey, right, in May. Patterson, New Jersey, the state of New Jersey conducted their first ever all-male election. And in June, uh, elected officials in the third largest city in New Jersey were arrested for uh, actively stealing ballots and um, you know, compiling them. They uh, later activists would say that they weren't they weren't just stealing ballots, but they were actually creating a database of signatures to be able to forge ballots in the future. Right. Um, 
And anytime you have extra, so like extra ballots are going places where legal voters aren't. Uh, there's 350 counties in this country with more registered voters than citizens of legal voting age. Uh, we're seeing a lot of eyes on Michigan right now. Well, the city of Detroit, remember Michigan last year, or uh, four years ago, went to Donald Trump by 11,000 votes. I don't know what the margin is right now, but it's something like 20,000 in favor of Joe Biden. Well, last year, the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan was actually sued because an analysis found the city of Detroit had 30,000 more registered voters than citizens of legal voting age. So, you know, that's one example, right? Pennsylvania, another very closely contested state. Pennsylvania has seen uh, a long history of election fraud problems. Remember, the Secretary of State of Pennsylvania, actually after the election in 2016, resigned quietly, and then subsequent documentation would reveal that he was actually fired by the Democratic governor because of all the problems they had in their election, including presiding over what they called a glitch that allowed for illegal immigrants to vote in Pennsylvania, right? And then the city of Philadelphia, which has been, uh, I think, correctly scrutinized, has a long history, unfortunately, of voter problems. Um, their primary this spring, they had to pause. They didn't actually certify the votes in Philadelphia over a week after the actual primary because they had to stop and go back and find instances of double voting and just being able to kind of track all the ballots. And that's unfortunately consistent with basically the story of the massive increase in mail-in balloting during the pandemic era, right? Um, you know, Wisconsin was one of the first states to do it. And they saw you know tens of thousands of votes discarded. They saw employees complaining they had to work over 100 hours in a week. I mean, just keeping track of them all has proven to be very problematic in many states that matter a lot in a presidential election. And that unfortunately kind of is where fraud thrives, right? Fraud thrives in uh, areas of chaos and areas of disorganization. And so those voter rolls, which we referenced, like those are like, that's where you want to start when you take, take a look at the problems. I would expect to the extent that this is going to become something that is viewed electorally, right? Or viewed legally, um, and you're going to have court battles over ballots and where to count. Like I expect to hear quite a bit discussed about the problems with America's voter rolls, because like it's one thing to have, you know, erroneous registration problems, but it's another thing to exploit them. And the evidence that we have shows that they're very easily exploitable. So the city of New York, this is an example, the city of New York said, all right, well, how easy is it to kind of track this stuff down and how easy is it to take advantage of voter registration problems? So they sent undercover investigators a few years ago into different boroughs and precincts in New York City to try to cast ballots on behalf of people that um, you know, shouldn't be legal voters, right? Whether they're people that were deceased, whether they're people that were felons, the people that were uh, not legal citizens. So they identified 63 registrations they wanted to exploit, and they attempted to cast ballots on behalf of these 63 registrants. 61 of those 63 attempts were successful, right? Meaning that people were able to successfully cast illegal ballots 61 of the 63 times they tried to do it in the city of New York. And then one of the other two times they tried to do it, they were unsuccessful, they were only stopped because they were trying to cast a ballot on behalf of a felon who was incarcerated in New York State, and the felon's mother happened to be working the polling place. So, um, you know, and that was the only reason why, why they stopped it. So we know we've got problems in terms of, uh, you know, the issues and uh, exploiting the vulnerabilities in these systems. 
So, um, you know, so how does that happen and, and why do they perpetuate? One of the things that we've explored in, in the book is the idea that anytime states try to clean up their voter problems, uh, they're stopped by lawsuits that are funded by, um, you know, organized efforts by the left, many of which include funding from Soros-linked organizations. And so, um, you know, like, so look at the state of Ohio fought Mark Elias, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign attorney in 2016, when they tried to remove illegal voters from voter rolls and they tried to implement voter ID. Uh, the state of Georgia had similar issues, the state of Indiana's had similar issues. So uh, at every turn, there, the states find, you know, legal opposition to be able to take a step to improve election integrity. Uh, and at the same time, people that fund the lawyers that are trying to keep American elections vulnerable fund organizations like the formerly named ACORN, the formerly named La Raza, that then go out and roust up as many voters as possible and like kind of shove them through those vulnerabilities that the lawyers fight to make sure still exist. Uh, so you know, that's how you have kind of really weird outcomes. But, um, you know, and I'll talk about this and then I'll just talk about one other kind of thing I think was worth paying attention to. And then, you know, we could kind of ask questions, uh, Morton, or kind of however you want to do it. But I would say we know that uh, four years ago, there was a lot of talk about how many illegal immigrants voted, right? That was, you know, Donald Trump cited statistics saying, hey, I lost the popular vote by 3 million people. There's been studies uh, from old Dominion professors and elsewhere that say as many as 8 million illegal immigrants may be registered to vote. Um, you know, that will not be the talking point this year, right? The, this year, the talking point will be about these absentee ballots because we've seen this massive increase in them and the impact that those have had on the election. Uh, and, and the reality, sadly, to the extent that this election is going to come down to absentee ballots in and around the area of Detroit and in and around the area of Philadelphia, uh, I mean, the reality is, is that even the New York Times has, has said absentee balloting is by far the most vulnerable form of voting to fraud, right? And uh, the cities like Michigan, who have had election officials prosecuted previously for actual voter fraud, Philadelphia, literally early this year, had an election judge charged with stuffing the ballot box. It's like almost out of a cartoon, right? He um, waited until the polls closed. They went into the polls and took as many ballots as possible and shoved them in there because he was being paid by political campaigns. So the reality is, is that right now, America's elections hinge on the form of voting that's proven to be the most susceptible to fraud in the areas with documented histories of fraud. So um, that's not excellent news, but, uh, but it is reality. And uh, that's kind of where we're at. And I'm happy to kind of talk more about that if you'd like. But I, I would also just sort of draw your attention to just one of the things that we've witnessed, I think, this year uh, that has been, in my mind, unprecedented, but I think it's really interesting. So uh, Morton mentioned that I produced a film called The Creepy Line, and that's available on Amazon if you want to watch it. If you guys have seen the movie, The Social Dilemma on Netflix, um, it's very much like that. Ours came out a couple years ago and um, you know, featured interviews with Jordan Peterson and other just sort of sociologists about the history and the impact that Google and Facebook specifically have had on American society. But we also feature um, extensively interview with a guy named Dr. Robert Epstein. And Dr. Epstein's been doing research on this for a long time. And one of the things he talked about in the film was uh, what, he, what the impact Google can have on American elections. 
through a variety of things, uh, you know, not the least of which is, you know, how they like rank search engine results and how they autocomplete search engine queries. And you've seen, if you've been paying attention on social media, you've seen some people kind of flag this. He calls it search engine manipulation effect. And, uh, you know, that's, and he's done a lot of research on that. And, it, you know, they it proved that Google was obviously in the tank for Hillary Clinton four years ago. Eric Schmidt famously was at Hillary Clinton's election night rally, um, you know, even sort of worked on, on behalf of the campaign in some way. But if you notice, like this year, every time you logged on to Twitter or Facebook or even Google, you saw these kind of get out the vote messages. And, um, you know, Dr. Epstein, one of the points Dr. Epstein makes in the film, and this is the reason why I bring it up, is, uh, you know, he talks about how, like, you know, these guys can target, they have so many data points about us. These guys can target who they show get out the vote messages to. And so if they decided, right, to only send, hey, reminder, go vote messages to registered Democrats or Democratic super voters or Democrat undervoters or whatever it is, just the amount of power that these companies have on, um, you know, like influencing the electorate and there's no way to know about it, right? And there's no way to kind of prove it and uh, it would essentially be the equivalent of a major election commission contribution that would violate all sorts of laws. So just, but I think we've seen on some level, some form of that this year. So just another thing I think to kind of pay attention to and flag as um, troubling and just another area that, that we shouldn't take for granted that uh, these companies now have this power. So um, uh, yeah, so I guess I'll pause there. Morton, if, if there are questions, I can talk more about who we are at the Government Accountability Institute and kind of some of the stuff we've done historically. Uh, you know, we, our research incidentally kind of led to, um, Donald Trump's campaign ended up using our research uh, when we wrote the book and did the film Clinton Cash and it was about the Clinton Foundation and uh, the cross-pollination of people that donated to the Clinton Foundation that Lynn sought favors from the Department of State when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Uh, and then ironically, you know, we worked on a book called Secret Empires, and that book is actually the book that launched the narrative that um, about Hunter Biden and the offshoring of corruption and the, the ways in which foreign interests pursued family members and politicians as a way to influence American policy. And then obviously that, um, that research is what Donald Trump was asking about in the conversations that led to his impeachment. So. It's kind of weird, you know, we're here in little old Tallahassee, Florida, and our research was used, uh, you know, by the Trump campaign to kind of help get him elected. And then ironically, our research was used in what led to Trump's impeachment. So, you know, we're, uh, we're just sitting down here and, you know, drinking our tea and watching everything unfold. But um, it was an interesting time at our election night party, I'll just say that. So uh, with that, I'll pause. If there's any questions, you know, I'm happy to address them. Are you interested in running for office? Want to work on a campaign? At the Leadership Institute, it is our mission to increase the effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. We offer over 40 different trainings, including campaign management school, on-camera TV trainings, and writing workshops. If you want to make a difference in public policy, visit leadershipinstitute.org. That's leadershipinstitute.org. Yeah, so we're actually, I'm seeing a theme already in the questions. So I'll, I'll kind of compile a few into one here before we, we start to fatigue, because I think we are uh, all a little <laughs> worse for wear after last night. So a few of the questions are about 
you know, you're talking about all these ways that, that the elections are not uh, honest, if you will. What are some things that maybe we as citizens can do or uh, through the political process do to make, to increase the integrity of the elections? I'll, I'll ask a little bit of a leading question um, out of my own curiosity and some of the uh, research that I've done on you is talking about, can you address blockchain technology and how that can, can uh, help with that and compared to other countries? So sure. emphasis on that. <laughs> so I think, I think the common link there, right, is um, that we are a third world country, right, when it comes to election technology. And so, right, I mean, I mean, think about like the ways in which you voted, like I voted yesterday in Florida, we have Scantron technology, right, so like you fill in the bubble and you slide it in there. And that's actually, that's one of the reasons why you saw Florida's votes be fairly quickly, like we're like in Florida, we are so jacked up to not be at the center of the election problems this year, okay, you guys are welcome. So uh, like, we, like Florida A plus last night. So, uh, but you know, and that doesn't seem like fancy technology, but compared to some of the ways other states do it, it is, right? Uh, and that's why I think so many people, myself included, were raising these questions about, hey, you've got this massive increase in absentee ballots, you've got this massive increase in ballots that are coming via the mail. So there's just so many more ways for them to fail. And so the technological kind of hindrances are, uh, are very real, right? Um, now, so the answer, but the good news is technology can be part of the solution to both parts of Deidre's question, right? So the, what can you do about these problems? Well, yeah, you can be a monitor, right? You can like get some eyes in the places where eyes need to be to, just to make sure that the ballots that are legally cast get counted and get put in the right places. Uh, that was part of what was so troubling about some of the things we saw on social media yesterday coming out of Philadelphia, right? You saw people that appeared to be credentialed, certified, legal poll watchers, legal election you know kind of volunteers to help ensure integrity and they were turned away and prevented from doing the thing that appeared they've been trained and permitted legally to do so that obviously doesn't increase confidence in the legitimacy and security of the outcome uh the good news why is technology an answer to that because we know about it because people took pictures of it took video of it and then put it on social media i was actually part of a panel in uh minnesota Couple weeks ago with one of the project veritas guys and he made i thought a very good point is that everyone now right has this and this is the same technology that members of the news media have so like everyone now can be a citizen journalist everyone now has the ability to take photographs take videos and put it to the world where people can track and see like whatever instances of questionable behavior regarding elections are taking place so I think that's part of the solution, right? So get engaged, become a poll volunteer, become somebody that, that helps make sure that things that are supposed to happen are happening is that. And then, uh, you know, so uh, Deidre mentioned blockchain technology. It sounds like she's done excellent research and she had to listen to at least one of my speeches before when I've mentioned the fact that countries like Estonia, right? Which is former Baltic state, Eastern Europe, like not necessarily known for really many things, uh, but parts of Estonia are, have used blockchain technology, right? So the decentralized holding of different pieces of information uh, to help conduct elections. And, um, you know, they've done it securely, right? West Virginia actually experimented with that and did it successfully a couple of years ago for the first time in allowing members of the military to cast ballots from overseas. 
uh, over their cell phones. So, I mean, we there are better and more secure ways to do it. Uh, the technology exists. It's obviously a massive lift in terms of investment in it. And obviously, you know, the, the good news, part of the reason why you, you hear people say election fraud is, can't happen on a scale large enough to matter is because of the decentralized nature in which we conduct elections, right? Every state does it differently. Uh, even every county can do it differently, right? So elections are only as kind of valid and secure as the, the counties in which, and the, the supervising the counties that conduct those elections. Um, ironically, I'll note, you know, Florida historically, I've talked about my book, about Broward County's supervisor election, lady named Brenda Snipes. And, you know, we had problems in Broward County two years ago, we've had problems in Broward County historically. Uh, and um, so they ended up having to remove Brenda Snipes after so many problems. I mean, Brenda Snipes was so bad in Broward County, it's like the second most populous county in Florida. Her website said that Dr. Brenda Snipes has presided over, quote, some successful elections, right? So, but anyway, they removed her, they put in this other guy. And so Broward County elections went awesome last night. And it actually led to an increase in voter turnout and votes for Democrats, right? Because it's a heavily Democratic county, counties that run well, more votes be counted. So, I mean, we should be in favor of all votes counting and being done legally. Uh, so all that to say, um, you know, it, but they can't happen because it's decentralized. So it's hard to get all these decentralized areas to accept one uniform technological solution. And so I would say that's gonna be, you know, the challenge there. Okay, uh, we do have a specific question about corpses and illegals. So um, the question is, is anything being developed currently to stop, you know, deceased people and illegal immigrants from voting? So uh, that gets back to, uh, like, so just to be clear, right? When we talk about dead people voting, we're talking about people on the voter rolls who have since died, sadly. And uh, the, but the names remain. And so that, there are, there's a legal registration that someone could cast a ballot on their behalf. And fun fact, uh, that actually would be the only form of election fraud that would be considered voter fraud, right? So lawyers will tell you that the way that voter fraud is defined is intentionally under-inclusive because voter fraud technically, according to like the Brennan Center and other people that say voter fraud is not a real thing, is that voter fraud is only an act of intentional voting on behalf of a legal voter by an illegal voter, right? So voting as on behalf of a dead person would kind of fit that example. Um, the voter rolls have to be examined, they have to be cleaned up. And so that's why it's so troubling, you know, when um, states like Ohio, states like West Virginia, states like Indiana want to take a look at their voter rolls and then they're stopped in the name of, uh, you know, voter suppression, right? They say, oh, you're just trying to keep people from voting. California just settled a massive lawsuit with Judicial Watch. Judicial Watch found like 2 million people on their voter rolls that weren't real voters, right? People had died, people had moved. To be fair, some conservatives have sort of a role in this. I was doing a radio interview with a talk show host and he, uh, I mentioned the issue of, you know, when you're registered to vote in more than one state because you moved or whatever, some people can lead to double voting. We actually did a report at GAI, the think tank that I work for, that found over 2,000 instances in 2016 of double voting in Florida alone. People casting a ballot in Florida and casting a ballot in the second state, you know, because they own property there and they're, they're on the registration roll. And I remember talk, asking this talk show host, or talking to him about it, and he said, yeah, I'm actually registered to vote in, in more than one state. You know, I moved, I'm still on the rolls there. 
And I said, well, how come you haven't told you know, the state that you are not a resident there anymore? And they said, well, because it's none of their business. So, you know, we have a, you know, we have to sort of be like helpful citizens that way. But that, I think that speaks to the problems, right? Is it's so reliant on self-reporting, like you have to tell people, hey, you know, my grandmother died, take off the voter rolls. Um, as far as the legal aliens go, one of the ways in which they identify illegal immigrants that are on the voter rolls is the fact that if you're registered to vote, then you become, you get jury duty. And so people, you know, shocking, but don't want to do jury duty. So legal immigrants get jury duty notices and they write in to say, hey, please remove me from the voter rolls. Uh, so, and like, that's one, that's one level of analysis for this problem. Uh, but it is a serious issue, right? It's like, because of the uh, 1990s legislation that called the National you know, Motor Voter Rule, um, you can register to vote when you get your driver's license. But as we all know, the threshold to get your driver's license is very different than the threshold to vote. And so it's just like one box you check and then you become registered to vote. And by law, like the DMV official isn't really permitted to tell you uh, you know, hey, like to kind of walk you through the citizenship thing. Plus, it's not really their job, and I could do that. And um, the only thing to kind of stop the non-citizen from registering to vote would be the text on the box that you're checking, which is written in English, maybe not a language in which they're overly proficient. So, uh, so it happens all the time. And you know, I heard you mention that Ben is a legal citizen, and good for him. But. Um, but, but the reality is, is that many people, like if you register to vote, and if you actually vote as a non-citizen, it's like a capital offense. There was actually a British gentleman in Illinois. He was a priest. He'd been living in the country for seven years on his track to getting citizenship. But then like the last stages, they went back and said, hey, you've actually been voting. And it was true. He got deported. And they had to go back in line and start the process all over again. So um, it's a real problem. And like, actually it's kind of my favorite angle of it all because to me, like, to the extent that Democrats are the party that says, hey, we welcome immigrants, you know, we want to celebrate them, and we want to create pathways of citizenship and all that. But because they fought so much to keep America's elections vulnerable, they've actually, in my opinion, victimized these group of immigrants that they claim they're there to protect uh, by endangering their citizenship uh, and resident status. So um, hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> So we have a few questions about the current election and you may not be able to answer them with the news uh, cycle going. Like I've got the, the TV on up here, so I kind of am watching it, but yeah, I'll do my best. Excellent. Um, so we have a few questions about whether or not we've already seen in this election certain states' vote, voter rolls being higher than the number of eligible voters. Is that the case yet? Do you know, and if so, do you think that will be addressed or how, how has that been addressed in the past? So the only way that that would have occurred, right, is if we saw, so you see these states, right, talk about like X percentage of uh, precincts reporting, right? Um, you know, no state's going to have 100% voter turnout. So I, I doubt that we'll see, in fact, I feel very confident in saying that we will not see a state count more votes than they have legal residents. Uh, if that happened, then obviously that would be flat. Um, but I do think that, and again, this is sort of why I say, you know, uh, states like Michigan, states like Pennsylvania, states that have been proactive as far as mailing ballots out, mailing absentee ballot request forms, and then, you know, Pennsylvania, they will still accept absentee ballots till Friday. And, um, 
you know, and I think they still have to be postmarked by Tuesday, or at least that's the case now. And that would be very, that, to me, that's kind of what I'm watching. In 2018 in Florida, we had uh, a Senate race and a governor's race, be very close, very contested. And you talk to the lawyers involved in this. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but it's part of my research, and I speak to a lot of lawyers. And they will tell you that the thing that they watch and things they worry about is the effort by Democrats to change the rules legally while the game is still happening, right? So like we said, we were only going to accept ballots like this, but now, hey, look, you don't want to disenfranchise these voters, right? So let's accept these ballots. I mean, you saw in Virginia, the Supreme Court had a rule that said they would only accept ballots that had a postmark on them. But that means that the Virginia Attorney General was arguing that they should, they should accept ballots uh, with no postmark, right? Potentially opening it up that the ballots would have been passed after election day. So, um, I mean, but that, but that's sort of, the, but even that we're there, that we're arguing over postmarks, uh, I think just speaks to the problems and why we should be having questions and concerns. Cause like, it's one thing you go to the polling place, you cast your ballot, it's counted, right? But when you start to rem get, the further removed you get from that process, they're just more steps in the way. So like my friend is a teacher. I know you guys are in DC. I don't know how many people, well, this is a younger crowd. So I don't know, probably nobody has kids, but like uh, people, a lot of people I know in the DC area in Northern Virginia, the kids are doing like remote learning, right? Uh, in Florida, you know, we have brick and mortar schools because we have a Republican governor and because, you know, I'm not, obviously I'm not concerned about my kids' health. So uh, like, hey, send them to school. But the point is like my friend that teaches and she's got kids that do remote learning. She says one of the challenges is, is that like there's just so many more ways to fail now if you're a kid that's doing remote learning, right? Like it's not just, hey, do you understand the material? It's is your internet connection bad? Your speakers not work, right? Like did your thing freeze up? And I think that's a metaphor that I think applies perfectly for the form of voting and their election results we're now seeing. There's just so many more ways for ballots to fail the further removed you get from uh Casting a ballot, right? Like maybe the maybe the ballots get lost or discarded, which happens. Maybe the signatures don't match, which happens, right? Maybe you've got a heavily partisan board that's reviewing the ballots, like what they have in Minnesota, and they're disproportionately inclined to not accept certain ballots, which happens. So, um, you know, so I think that's those are the things I'm more concerned about now than the citizenship voter roll percentage. Thanks for listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. To listen to more breakfast, head over to the Leadership Institute YouTube channel. And to see who our next WWCB speaker is, visit our website at leadershipinstitute.org. The Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast is produced and edited by Alexander Chang with support from Tiffany Roberts and Jared Cummings. Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell.